Hoopsla Podcast Episode 12, Find Bugs. The Oopsla Podcast brings you up to speed on topics covered at this year's Oopsla Conference, which takes place in October 2007 in Montreal, Canada. For more information, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. The Oopsla Podcast is co-produced with Software Engineering Radio and with Dibsum Thinking. I'm Daniel Steinberg, your host for this episode. We talked to Bill Pugh on the telephone about a tutorial he's giving at Oopsla 2007 on using Find Bugs in Anger. Find Bugs is Pew's static analysis tool that can be used to find bugs in Java code. Pew talks about using it on code in the JDK as well as in code at Google. He talks about common bugs and how a tool such as Find Bugs is best used. I'm Bill Pugh, um, sometimes known as William Pugh. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Maryland um, where I teach computer science. Uh, my research areas and interests span from... Um, algorithms and data structures to various concepts in programming languages, including a lot of work on algorithms that came up in implementing compiler techniques and so forth. But more recently, I've been moving towards the uh, um, people end of the problem because the processors are getting exceptionally fast, but um, software productivity isn't keeping up. And so I've more recently been looking at issues in terms of how to help people develop um, reliable code um, easily and quickly. It, it, it's sort of a quest for me because I think sometimes in academia, you know, it's real easy to get you know separated from the issues that actually face face real developers. Um, and so that's actually one of the reasons. So this summer I'm spending um, my time out on the West Coast. I'm sitting here in a cubicle at Google, um, working with the people at Google, trying to um, not only help them better integrate find bugs into their software development process, but also understand, well, what are the issues that um, face Google in terms of their software development? Now, Google may not be typical, but certainly if I could figure out a way to improve their software productivity, they'd like it. But I'm also going to be visiting a bunch of other companies and so forth. FindBugs, like a lot of um, research projects, was very much an accidental um, research project. It it actually came, I'd previously been doing work on compressing Java class files. So how to make take class files and compress them into a very small format for wire transport. And as a result, I had all these utilities for um, picking apart Java class files and analyzing them. And I was talking with Joshua Block, at, who at the time was at Sun, written books on like effective Java programming and so forth. And he just got into questions. You know, I've been recommending that people do this in my books. How often do people do it the wrong way? Well, it turns out I had tools where I could write something to see how many people did things the wrong way. And it started out with some very simple things. And we found out that, yeah, you know, there really are some very simple mistakes that people make, and you can find them with very simple techniques, and they occur all the time in production code. Probably one of the sim simplest ones to diagnose is that um, in Java, the string class is immutable. Once you have a string object, you can't change it. And so there are methods on the string class, like to lowercase, to uppercase, um, you know, replace this character with that character. All of those methods return a new string because you can't change the string they're invoked on. But if you see a place in a program where you simply have like, you know, s dot to lowercase semicolon with the return value being ignored, right, then what that means is somebody's thinking that this code is supposed to take that the method call is supposed to change us, but it doesn't. So that's an example of a simple mistake that we see you know, fairly often. The most humorous mistake 
that I see all the time is the infinite recursive loop. So the infinite recursive loop is a method that returns the result of invoking itself. And this actually came up because we had a student came to my office hours and he had a problem and turned out in his constructor for a class, he was constructing an instance of what it was he was supposed to be constructing. So this created a cycle. And when a second student came in with the same problem, I said, okay, I must have explained something wrong in lecture. And I decided to write something for FineBugs because we have students use FineBugs um, in the class and provide these results to them and figured I could help the students. And I found these problems in a couple more student um, code samples. And then I said, well, okay, let me make sure. I didn't make a bug because I make mistakes. Um, and I said, let me run this against Sun's JDK to make sure I'm not generating false positives, giving warnings about infinite recursive loops where there aren't any. And so I ran it against Sun's JDK, and I found five of them. I said, oh, that must be a mistake. I said, no. I looked, and there they were. And one of them, so like I said, Joshua Block, who's one of the people who's very well known as being a, and the person you go to for advice on good Java programming style, written a lot of the collection classes, he had written a one-line method that did nothing except return the result of invoking itself. But the main thing that we focus on is um, finding correctness errors. Um, it, it does do some things to look for people doing you know, dodgy coding practices, but the main focus is on finding correctness errors. And we look for things that certainly when you look at them, you go, oh boy, that looks wrong. Um, and our experience in a number of companies and projects we've looked at, that at least half of the correctness issues that FindBugs warns about production code, you'll go, oh boy, I want to change that in my code. If you actually run it on code that's been in production, then a lot of the serious bugs have already been gotten rid of, and so it doesn't find quite as many issues there, although generally still people want to fix a lot of them. Um, if you run on just new code that's just fallen off somebody's fingertips you know, before it's been tested at all, it's more likely that the issues that FindBugs finds are actually serious ones. Um, more than 600 of the issues found by FindBugs have been fixed in Google's code base. Um, Google has fixed more than 30 infinite recursive loops in their code base. FindBugs, it's a plug-in architecture, and anybody can write detectors for it. And we have a number of people who have written third-party party detectors. And we actually report issues in several different categories. And so we have categories such as bad practice or dodgy code. And some of these things might fall into those categories. Um, you know, so certainly you can write detectors that look for your methods too big or something like that. But in terms of getting adoption of find bugs and trying to make it most useful, our, my focus has been on coming up with stuff that when you show them to developers, they don't say, oh, that's just the way I program. They say, oh, it surprises me that that is in there. Let me go change my code. So the question is, how do you actually use FindBugs in your software development process? So one of the things which is, is well, you just run FindBugs, and if you run it over, say, a million lines of code, um, FindBugs will typically generate something on the order of several hundred correctness warnings, 400, 500, something like that. That's an awful lot to have to deal with. And one of the things that you, you know, sort of have to understand is that um, and developers don't sit around twiddling their thumbs waiting for some issue to come floating by that they can spend time on. If you want to have them look at warnings that have been produced by some tool, you've got to convince them that their time doing that is 
better spent than going through the bug database or all the other things we have to do. So developer time is precious, and we have to conserve it. So you have to have people go through these issues, and, and sometimes it's a matter of figuring out, well, um, these issues are important to us. This general category turns out that for our product, this, one, this category just isn't an issue. And so in any particular development, you do some prioritization in terms of that, which categories are important, which ones aren't. But it turns out that one of the things that is really important to try to do this is, for whatever reason, when you run FindBugs, it's going to report some issues. And some of the issues that it's going to report, particularly if this is code that's been out in the field for a while, it's going to come up with some issues and you say, yeah, that code's not good code, but it's not going to do anything really wrong, and so I don't want to change it. Okay, I don't want to change my code just because your tool gave me a warning. Okay, fine, so you don't do that. Well, now, next time you analyze the code, that same issue is going to get warned about. But if you've already looked at that issue and somebody has decided, okay, yes, I see what it's complaining about. I'm not going to change my code. You don't want to have to keep doing that process over and over again. So basically, there are two things you can do. You can, you know, as you go through um, and look at stuff, you can actually mark stuff, what stuff, should be fixed, what stuff is mostly harmless, what's the result of bad analysis. We don't get too many of those. And after you've done that, then when you reanalyze it, if an issue is reoccurs when you reanalyze the code that's the same as the result that you analyzed previously, you want those previous audit results to carry over. So that if you previously marked it as mostly harmless, when you reanalyze it, it's still marked as mostly harmless. Even then, going through 500 warnings and classifying them all can be hard. So here's one of the other things you can do. Say you have a big project. You say, oh, I, if I generate this, it's going to generate 500 warnings. I just don't have the manpower to even go through and do an initial audit of 500 warnings. Besides, it's been out in the field, right? So it went through Q&A. You say, okay, well, one of the other things you can do is you can say, okay, let's take this version that went through Q&A that's been out in the field for three months and use that as our baseline. And we'll just assume that everything that's in our baseline, eh, manana, we'll look at the issues later, but it made it through Q&A. But you can set up fine bugs to basically do a differential report where you can say, okay, I just want to look at any issues that weren't in the baseline. Go through and do an audit of those. If you're doing a continuous build process, you can also do something where every time somebody makes a commit, you rebuild your system. You can reanalyze it. And then you can say, okay, show me the issues that were introduced just by that change. Right? So if somebody makes a 10-line change and that causes a new warning to be popped up, you get that as a result out of your continuous build system. It may or may not be something you want to fix. But, I mean, one of the reasons for this is that the best time to have a developer look at a warning is as close as possible to the time when they made the code change and introduced it. Because, I mean, sometimes, you know, I look at the code in Sun's JDK, and I find an issue in some class. I talk to people at Sun about trying to get that fixed, and they say, oh, well, that code hasn't been touched in five years, and the person who wrote it, it no longer works for Sun, and we're not even sure which group is responsible for it anymore. Right? I mean, that comes up. I mean, actually, it turns out that at Sun they don't have like a map that says this class file is owned or, or, you know, this package is owned by this group. They just kind of know it the way, you know, New York taxi drivers know the streets of New York. And so you really want to get it to developers as soon as possible after they make the change. And I talk about these issues you don't want to fix. 
Let me give you some examples so you can sort of understand why that happens. Um, one thing that will happen fairly often is you'll have a place where somebody will set some variable, to define a variable, set equal to null, and then they'll say if argument equals 1, do this, else if argument equal to 2, set you know, this variable to some non-null value, else if argument equals 3, set it to this. So they have a chain of you know, if, else if, else ifs, and for each one they set this variable to some non-null value. But the last case isn't simply an else. It's an else if argument equals 5. And so if the argument's equal to 6, they fall off the else if chain. The variable's null, and they'll wind up dereferencing the null pointer. Okay? So that's an error. We'll, we'll report that as a potential null pointer warning. The thing is, well, how would you fix it? Well, you'd probably fix it by if they gave you an illegal argument, you'd throw an illegal argument exception. And so the result of this error in your code is that um, rather than throwing an illegal argument exception, you throw a null pointer exception. Not that much of a difference. Maybe you don't want to go and change your code based on it. Or another example we see a fair bit is, you know, like we'll see a place where somebody has put in a test and say, you know, if foo not equal to null, then do something that involves dereferencing foo. But then after the, after the if statement, there's another place where they dereference foo without the null check. And so findbugs will complain, hey, up here you thought that foo could be null, but down here, you're dereferencing foo without a null check. So that's a potential null pointer error. And the thing is that sometimes if you do a deeper analysis, you find out, hey, you know what? Foo really just can't be null. The check up earlier, that was just a defensive check put in by somebody who didn't know whether or not foo could be null. And so, well, do you want to fix it by removing the null check? It would improve the code, but you know, do you really want to touch existing code? So, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people don't want to touch existing code. That's actually one of the things they've been working on at Google. Um, so they've been using FindBugs for a while, but it's all been through this process where when code is checked in, you know, after it's checked in, they run something overnight, they get the analysis results, and it gets sent, and somebody looks at it, and if it looks like a bug, it gets sent to developers, and often it doesn't get to developers until, you know, like a week after they made the change. And now at Google, they're trying to implement something where basically as part of your commit process, you will see the results of um, running static analysis tools over your code. And if there are any new issues introduced by the change, then you have to look at them. Somebody else has to look at them and agree that the code's okay, even though it introduced these static analysis warnings. So um, a lot of people know about find bugs. You know, people at Sun know about it. Google, you know, I've given talks to thousands of people at the Java 1 conference and so forth. So a lot of people know what FindBugs, but when I go to companies, I generally find that they, you know, like, well, okay, yeah, we tried running FindBugs once. Or, you know, Joe runs FindBugs and sometimes tells us about the issues. And like I said, that's not really using FindBugs effectively. You want to make FindBugs part of your continuous um, build process. You want to have these things so that you have some sort of memory of when an issue was found and somebody looked at it and is this a real bug or not a bug. And basically we thought, well, you know, this isn't something we can really do in an hour talk or something like this. This this is a big topic. It really needs like at least a half day or something like that. And we thought that the um, OOPSLA conference would actually be a great place for this tutorial because it gets a, um, it's easy to get a half-day tutorial slot there, and it's a good mix of both academic and industrial attendees. So it would be a place where we think a number of people who would be interested in applying fine bugs in their software development process would be attending. 
and basically we want to um, hopefully get a number of people to show up so that people will actually start using FindBugs effectively and that they can go out and tell other people how to use FindBugs effectively and really get it used. I mean, the whole point of the FindBugs effort, you know, somebody asked me, you know, well, FindBugs, why didn't you start a company? I said, no, I just want to change the world. But it turns out that it's not just enough to invent cool technology. Um, you've also got to figure out how to help people use the cool technology, and that's really what we're trying to do. I mean, you know, FindBugs is not magic sauce. FindBugs will not make your code perfect. It won't correct all your bugs. But on the other hand, FindBugs can find real bugs in just about every chunk of code that we've looked at. And it's issues that when you show them to developers, they say, yes, yes, I want to get that kind of stuff out of my code. But helping them do that with all the other demands developers have on their time really requires, I think, some hands-on time to sit down and go through the process and figure out how to apply it. And that's what we're going to be trying to do with our tutorial. There's nothing about find bugs that couldn't be equally applied to any other programming language. It's more just a um, matter of engineering infrastructure. I mean, there's some things, some of the um, bug patterns that we find um, would be different. So, for example, the infinite recursive loops, um, I think one of the reasons those come up is when people try to write decorators. And so someone will try to write a decorator where they, you know, they're implementing an interface and most of the methods are just being delegated to some object, perhaps with some wrapper. And in one of the methods, they forget to say who they delegate to, so they delegate to themselves, and that's your infinite recursive loop. And so if you've got a, any programming language where you um, write decorators, I suspect this would happen. I'd love somebody to find out whether or not infinite recursive loops occur in C-sharp. Um, I suspect they do. Well, the question is, I mean, they obviously can. The question is, do they occur with the same frequency that they do in Java? But yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of the basic concept of find bugs, the reason why it's applicable, I think, is that I think there's been a lot of work in trying to do software defect detection tool that started off, oh, well, let's do a context-sensitive, past-sensitive, pointer alias analysis algorithm, and then we'll see if we can use that to find some bugs in software. Um, and with find bugs, it's really been, well, let's start with a real bug, not just one we thought might do, but actually a bug we saw in real software. And a lot of times, once you see a real bug in real software, you say, oh, okay, I understand that bug. I know how I could write something to look for that. And you know, in, in an hour, you can write something to look for that and run it across couple million lines of code, and no, sometimes you don't find anything, but sometimes you do. And when you do, well, then you know you've got something that you can um, start looking elsewhere, and you find it over and over and over again. And one of the things that companies should do as part of their Q&A process is that when they have you know bugs that they wind up getting bitten by and having to fix by some process other than static analysis, somebody should look at the bug and say, okay, you know, we got bit by this. Is this the sort of thing that could be found via static analysis? Now, what is some process for finding this bug that we could incorporate into our software development process? And you know, once you start doing that, you can start building up a database. Having these actual examples of real bugs, it's incredibly valuable. And I think, you know, C, C++, anybody says, okay, let's collect examples of real bugs. So an example, one of, I mean, there are a couple different ways that 
you know, I got ideas for bug patterns. One of them is I would simply look through the build notes for every version of the JDK, every build, and look at what bugs were fixed in this version of the JDK, and I'd look through them. I'd say, ah, here's one that could be found by static analysis. There are a couple of websites out there where people discuss coding horror stories. There's one called Worse Than Failure, where people give coding horror stories. And I look through those, and I find, oh, okay, there's a coding mistake I would never have thought of making. So, for example, one of them in Java is taking an int, casting it to a char, and then checking to see if the result's minus 1. Right now, a char in Java is an unsigned 16-bit value, so it can't be minus 1. Um, and this was came up on worse than failure, but I, like, I found lots of those in the clips. People will read from a um, reader, which returns either a character or minus 1 if it's end of file. And they'll cast the result to char, and then they'll check to see if the result's minus 1. And that won't work. Now, Oopsla in general is, um, I mean, I very much enjoy it as a conference because I both go to academic conferences and I have recently started going to a number of software development conferences. And Oopsla is, you know, one of the few conferences that really straddles both lines. I mean, there's both a lot of good academic research stuff, but it's also a place where a lot of, um, you know, practicing software developers go and so forth. And so I found it to be a... Um, the moment, I'd say it's probably one of the conferences I most regularly attend and try to get to. Bill Pugh is presenting a tutorial on using find bugs in anger at Oopsla 2007. Thank you for listening to the Oopsla podcast. If you want to know more about the Oopsla conference or if you want to get additional Oopsla podcast episodes, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. This episode, as well as the other episodes of the Oopsla podcast, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. The intro and outro music is by a band called The Plugs. The song is called Go East.